Welcome to NARAL's The Morning After. Each week, our podcast brings you the latest on reproductive health care, progressive politics, and the fight to keep abortion safe and legal. You can listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, YouTube, and on our website at ProChoiceOhio.org. The program also airs each Friday morning at 9 on WGRN 94.1 in Columbus, Ohio. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at ProChoiceOH. NARAL's The Morning After is a production of NARAL ProChoice Ohio. Enjoy the show! Hi, I'm Kelly. Hi, I'm Ariana. And I'm Rhiannon. So uh, we're doing something a little different this week for the podcast. Um, It's not like any legislative session stuff. It's not um, any of our typical topics, I don't think. We're talking about the history of abortion, Um, kind of going, not quite a deep dive necessarily, because we do only have half an hour, but like we're going past 2011 into the past of abortion access uh the old it, days yeah the old days of not this decade or not this <laughs> century even uh oh man it's weird to me that like the 1990s is a long time ago for abortion access and we're uh, gonna go back to i don't know how far back are we going Rhiannon? um i think that it'd be really reasonable to start in the 1920s exactly 101 years ago oh well, yeah what's 2021 what's, if you forgot oh no oh no <laughs> So what what is going on in 1920 in, let's say, the United States regarding abortion? Well, of course, we know that there's a big depression and we have a lot of um, immigrants coming into New York specifically, and that gave rise to um, more access to education because New York had a lot of free schools for a while that were allowing immigrants to go to night school and learn English and then get um, degrees, not just trades which is partially nifty. However, then it gave rise to the medical community being male-led because women were still staying at home and taking care of the homes, even in a new country. Um, So it was the rise of the medical community wanting to discredit midwives and previous medical systems that had been put in place of taking care of the people because that's what you do when you're a community. Um, So they wanted to take a stand and in one hand discredit women and in another hand force people to get degrees and pay to go to college to get medical degrees. But they weren't teaching very much about safe abortions and how to perform abortions at medical schools in the United States at all. So these doctors didn't know how to perform safe abortions. So they just thought abortions were unsafe and were damaging. So was abortion legal in the 1920s in the United States? It was right before, I believe it was legal until like 1923 or four when this medical association came up, took a stand and they decided to ban it and make it illegal until 1972 or three. 1973. Uh, 1920 is also the founding of Planned Parenthood and just off the heels of, you know, the last global pandemic, the Spanish flu, <laughs> um, as well as World War One. Uh, so you're seeing a much uh, an interesting rise in globalization and um, international movement that we hadn't necessarily seen in the same capacity before. Um, and also, albeit illegal, um, the rise of birth control. So interesting time um but 
the history of abortion in this country and i mean i guess the world is it's people have definitely wanted to not be pregnant for as long as humans existed uh, as i understand it there's a plant uh on the from from the african continent that is extinct because of how much it was used for terminating pregnancies and two of the earliest medical books one came out of china and one came out of egypt both had passages and instructions on how to perform abortions and what was good for abortions there's a lot of historical knowledge that is lost um on how to perform abortions because it was largely in the hands of midwives which were criminalized by the american medical establishment like taking it across the border for a second i know i studied this a million years ago in college um yeah like abortion was just a couple years ago <laughs> like ma'am uh, four years ago in college, I um, studied about um, like abortion in Mexico and like, you know, a couple hundred years ago. And yeah, it was just something that like happened. Like it wasn't, it was like a little hush hush after um, like Spanish colonizers came with like the introduction of Catholicism, but it still happened. You would just go like, just go to like, you know, a midwife-esque woman and be like, hey, get this out of me. And she would, <laughs> you know, and people were fine. And, you know, that maybe not as safe as the options we have now, but it definitely wasn't super unsafe. It wasn't this, you know, weird secretive thing, the, the way it became, as Rianne was saying, with like the, you know, medicalization of reproductive health care. And it actually wasn't um, until the late 19, 19th century that the Catholic Church um, disallowed abortions for until very, like historically until very recently, they didn't have a strong stand on against abortion. So I think that's really interesting that a lot of times we talk about the Catholic Church as in they've always been against abortions and they haven't always been against abortions or birth control. What was the political context in which they decided to have a strong stance? You know, I'm not sure. That's definitely something that I will have to look up. And even, I mean, prior to 1973, abortion was seen as like a Catholic issue. It was not Christianity in general. It was not an evangelical issue. It was, it was really just a Catholic issue. Um, and it's really not until probably the late 70s, early 80s, where you see it become a wider moral majority kind of movement uh and i say moral majority in the biggest of air quotes because they are neither moral nor the majority they're just loud yeah <laughs> take up a lot of space in terms of volume but not in terms of actual percentages of people um but yeah i think it's interesting that you know this didn't happen in a vacuum like it's not like one day suddenly people were like wait that's what we've been doing for centuries. Like I'm against that. It was, you know, part of a concerted effort by people in power to, you know, stigmatize and, you know, attempt to criminalize abortion because before it was just, yeah, it just happened. Women just did it. You know, we might not have like been marching down the streets talking about how much we love abortion, but we've always, because again, like it wasn't like super medicalized. It was just menstrual regulation right yeah right yeah because like childbirth wasn't medicalized either or like periods like we just let our uteruses kind of do their thing 
without doctors getting involved with them, um, you know, for a very long time. And when they did first try getting involved with them, they thought that our wombs wandered throughout their body. So obviously they did not start off on the right foot. Um, oh my gosh, when trains were invented, women weren't originally allowed to travel on trains because they thought the uterus would fly out of the body. <laughs> yeah, I mean, extra little seat belt. We have a whole, we have a word that is, you know, the etymology of it is related to uterus and it being what hysterical like there's there's i mean medical misogyny is nothing new um it's just getting more and more precise in a lot of ways <laughs> yeah vibrators were invented to cure <laughs> hysteria because people didn't know that you could just have an orgasm and like it um it was like you would go to the doctor for them to use this piece of medical equipment to like cure your hysteria. Um, because the doctor's wrists were getting tired. Yeah. Yeah. They were manually performing orgasms. Yeah. I just, I really love to think about doctors prescribing orgasms to cure hysteria. And I, I don't think they called it frigidness, but they did a few years later. Um, and then doctors being like, wow, this is a lot of work. Let me invent a machine to do this. And if you look up a picture of it, it's intense. Yeah. I will say in a roundabout way, they're not wrong. Masturbating and orgasms is very good for your mental health. Right. And for stress relieving and stuff. But what was like, what's funny about all that is they didn't see it as like sexual release because women weren't, they didn't think like we got horny yet. <laughs> You know, like that also um, kind of relates to how like sexuality was viewed back then too. Like in the you know, 19th century era, um, like women very often had like extremely close female friends that they would spend a lot of time with and send flowers to and have sleepovers. And nobody really, like it was obviously like not fully a thing, but like men just didn't think that women could have sex without a man. So it wasn't like there wasn't as much homophobia towards uh, like what we would call now like a lesbian couple as there were were to um, like gay couples. I mean, like Boston roommates, I think is what they was like one of the nicknames, Boston roommate. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As long as they got married in a reasonable time, and I say that in air quotes, then society was like, okay, cool, live with your best friend, live with your cousin. Call them whatever you want. I mean, queer people and abortion has always existed. Die mad about it. But what happens between the 20s and 73 as far as abortion is concerned? I mean, we have the feminine mystique from Betty Friedan. We have first or we have second wave feminism because the first wave is, you know, women's suffrage in 1920 with the 19th Amendment. Um, so what happens between those times? Yeah, so we really didn't have a lot of activism around abortion that between then. It feels like history kind of goes silent on it. And I think part of that is because of World War II um, taking up a lot of space rightfully. Um, but I really, there's just not a lot of information on what happened between then until other, like the civil rights movement started, the queer movement started and women's rights started. So it feels, it feels weird that it just went silent, but I guess 
people were preoccupied in other ways. However, we do know that abortions didn't stop because when the abortion debate really blew up, there was doctors that were performing them not undercover, but like behind closed doors illegally, they were turned to to talk about how they did it because schools still weren't teaching how to perform abortions. So doctors were figuring it out or non-licensed people were doing it in unsanitary places and we have recorded deaths. They had a saying of like the Monday day lineup where women would get paid on Friday, get an abortion on Saturday and be lined up at a clinic or a hospital on Monday to get cleaned out from whatever was used to try to induce an abortion. Well, I hadn't heard about that before. That's really interesting. I mean, we, we honestly still see that today where you will see an increase in abortions performed uh, in January or in August and in October or September and October because it's after their children go to school or after the holidays for um, presents like where people will have to like save their money back up after a holiday. So it's a big, big influx at, in the new year. Um, so it really hasn't changed that much since ever. <laughs> I think what's really just kind of changed is um, people's understanding on whether or not it's legal in Ohio and other places. So we've gotten to, let's say, 73, where we have Roe versus Wade, the decision that makes uh, abortion legal um, and allows states to kind of define what that means um, without outlawing it outright. Um, 76, we see the first iteration of the Hyde Amendment, which outlaws federal funding for abortion. Um, and then we also start seeing our first deaths because of the Hyde Amendment. So patients who are unable to access abortion care who then take it into their own hands um, and don't have the best outcomes. What I found was interesting when I was researching was that um, America was the first country to open clinics that to perform abortions opposed to performing them within hospitals where that's normally where they're performed in Europe still today. Um, and then of course, it's easier to target a clinic that you know is doing XYZ opposed to an entire hospital where you may feel differently about other things that are going on in the hospital. So there was a partial positivity because it, it allowed for there to be direct funding to funnel towards the clinics, but then all of the hatred and anger can get really easily targeted towards them. I mean, and then you see the rise of trap laws, like targeted regulation of abortion providers can't necessarily happen in a hospital setting because the hospital is the hospital, but you can kind of put those rules on a freestanding clinic because they're going to have a harder time complying with them. And I think also like having abortions only being performed like in a clinic, I feel like it adds um, like a layer of like caution, I would say around the procedure, because I think it makes people feel like it's a lot harder of a procedure or a more complex procedure. And that's why it needs to have a standalone clinic. Um, like I know, like I've always been pro-choice. I remember being younger and thinking like, wow, if they have to have an own, like their own clinics, like this has to be like some really hard thing that only like highly, highly specialized gynecologists can do um, when that's really not the case at all. <laughs> it's super simple, quick and easy, um, you know, so there's really, 
Right. It's an outpatient facility like so many other things like colonoscopies or your dentist's office. Um, but I do think that standalone clinics um, do kind of add a layer of stigma because if it's an abortion clinic, you know what those people in the parking lot are there to do. Um, so there's kind of a layer of privacy taken away um, when it's a standalone clinic that you wouldn't necessarily have to deal with in a hospital setting. Not to say that abortion has to be medicalized. Um, there are people who take abortion into their own hands with self-managed abortion um, due to personal reasons, whether it's they don't want to have it happen in a clinic setting or, you know, religious reasons or spiritual reasons. So there's no obligation to be for it to be medicalized, but I feel like it's also taking away, you know, that option of privacy in a hospitalized setting that you wouldn't have to worry about because um, you're just there like everybody else is there for the hospital. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I think like, you know, there's definitely been like a rise in awareness around self-managed abortion over the past, you know, definitely the past couple years, um, I would say like the past like two or three, it's like, you know, like skyrocketed in terms of um, visibility. But uh, I think it's great because yeah, like abortion has always been in our own hands, you know, for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, and then, you know, became medicalized, but that doesn't mean it has to stay medicalized. You know, it's, you're taking medicine and it's, you know, something to do with your body. But again, like just the way that we don't have to give birth in a hospital, you know, you can have a home birth and be with a doula or a midwife. I think abortion should be seen as and treated the same way um, because with more information and more, you know, medical research that makes those things even safer. Um, because, you know, if you want to have a self-managed abortion, rather than like guessing at like what types of like herbal rem remedies to use or things like that, you know what to use for it and then you can just do it. <laughs> right. So we've made it to the 80s in our abortion journey. Um, and like, I don't, I don't know anything about abortion in the, in the 80s. Like to me, it's just kind of a black hole. Like we won the right and now everything's fine. Um, were there abortion laws? passed in the 80s I assume there had to be um well I know that in France in 1988 specifically methoprestone was approved although it wasn't approved until 2000 in America which feels sketchy um why are the French on top of it and we're not but there was there was really just some back and forth they did determine in 19 they did a study of abortions between 1979 and 1986, and that is where we get the statistic that abortions are 10 times safer than birth, uh, and which continues to today, because we continue to assess that statistic to make sure it's accurate. The, uh, in 1968, going back a little bit, is when the vacuum aspirator was licensed, but between that we didn't it just it, we had a lot of um terrorist attacks on abortion clinics in the 80s because the clinics were newer so it was easier to target them the idea sprouted pretty early as soon as the clinic sprouted up yeah that's right uh it was under bill clinton that the face act is is passed um, I don't know what FACE stands for off the top of my head, but it has to do with blocking clinic as, uh, entrances and that being a federal offense. Um, 
Sorry. That was also when they decided not to have the 15 feet radius around individuals and cars, but just the clinic. The FACE, the FACE Act stands for Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances. And yeah, it was signed in 1994. As far as the French go, they've always been ahead of the United States. They may have taken a page out of our book as far as their own revolution goes, but I will say that, you know, with Simone de Beauvoir and egalitarianism as like part of their constitution, like whatever their freedom, liberty, egalitarian, like egalitarianism is just equality. It's part of the French, I don't know, concept of existence. Um, so I'm not really surprised that they're, that they're ahead of us as far as Mephipristone is concerned. They've definitely kept the revolutionary spirit alive a lot better. Right, no. In America. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, um, Mifepristone and misoprostol are the two pills we use for medication abortion. And yeah, like lots of other countries like already knew about this and like reducing them. Um, I know um, Mifepristone, or was it misoprostol? Misoprostol was um, like found out to be used, you know, can be used as a, for abortions by women in Brazil, like a while, like I want to say like early 20th century um, or like mid 20th century, but. Um, so so misoprostol is, was also under the name Cytotec and it is used for um, stomach ulcers. Uh, and yeah, it was pretty quickly found out to also induce, you know, labor. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And yeah. And then, um, yeah, since misoprostol is used for so many other things, um, in some countries you can just get it over the counter. Um, like dogs get prescribed misoprostol for something, for some reason. And so it's, you know, that makes it especially strange that in America it took so long for it to get FDA approved because it was already known to be a very, very safe drug. It's, um, actually safer to take than Tylenol is. And you can just, I could go to CVS right now and buy as much Tylenol as I wanted. And yet I can't do the same misoprostone, uh, misoprostol <laughs> as I could um, with that, which seems a little goofy. Yeah, the medication abortion regimen is also really interesting because there was a different regimen up until 20... 16 um that was fda approved so there was the fda method that had a higher dose of misoprostol and was not as effective it did not go as late in pregnancy uh as the what was called evidence-based method um which was less misoprostol and could go up to 10 weeks of pregnancy so uh due to an ohio law until 2016 we were not allowed to use the evidence-based method that was more effective, less expensive, and less dangerous. Um, and it changed overnight when I was working at the clinic in 2016. Um, and it was like, it was incredible. Like it was maybe one or two people had opted to take the medication abortion regimen when I was working at the clinic. And then it overnight immediately was about half and half. So miso is an interesting drug. <laughs> we've we've made it to the 80s and the early 90s what's what happens uh from the 90s to present day Rhiannon well something that was really big is that in 1994 the same year as the FACE Act um the Medical Students for Choice organization started 
where it's a club on, as far as I know, every medical campus where they advocate for teaching abortion in medical school. So that was really, really big because it still was not being taught regularly um, and consistently. So they, and then they create a presence because they're, they create a presence on campus to continue exposing med students to abortion and abortion access. And even though statistically, not all of them go on to become abortion providers, more medical people are trained to give abortions than you would really think because these clubs really did enact rules to teach abortion. Yeah, like it's, you know, shows how little capitalism and, you know, hetero patriarchy cares about people's uteruses because you know they took abortion away from us in a way and medicalized it so heavily and then it got to a point where you they don't even teach it in medical school like you know like you were just saying people themselves had to advocate for it to you know be like be taught more widely and it still isn't you have if you would like to become an abortion provider you need to like specifically look for medical schools with that in mind because um, it varies by like, even like, you know, it's been over 20 years since Med Students for Choice, you know, began having a presence on campuses. And, you know, to this day, you still aren't guaranteed to have that education um, at every medical school. Not there only is a- in the campuses where it is offered and is um, an option, it's opt-in. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an opt-in curriculum. So there are OB-GYNs out there who have never undergone abortion training. Um, they've gone under medical mi- or miscarriage management, which is, you know, the same procedure, but your abortion provider is going to be infinitely more skilled at it because they do it a lot. <laughs> yep. And again, it's not like it's some extra higher level thing. Like it is super, super simple to have an abortion. Um, I mean, like a medication abortion, you just swallow pills. Um, and like for an aspiration abortion, you just I mean multiple steps, <laughs> but basically, you know, dilate the cervix, aspirate the contents of your uterus, dispose, eat a snack, take a nap. Um, very simple. I mean, the Jane Collector showed us that anybody can do yes. abortions. Right. There is a fellowship and family planning that will sponsor students who plan to become abortion providers to pay for their med school. Is it based out of Arizona? I think I've heard of this. I think it's California. Another interesting thing about, um, despite abortion being a, a relatively easy procedure to learn how to do, um, and perform is who legally allowed to do it because uh, in the state of Ohio it is only licensed physicians not nurses not nurse practitioners they can't even dispense the medication if I understand correctly but in California nurses physicians can do it <laughs> yeah um, yeah like it again like that makes it seem like it's this scary thing so that you have to undergo when um, yeah, like nurse practitioners should be allowed to do it. Um, LP, like, and I think like LPNs should be allowed to do it. You know, it's not, 
that many more steps than like a pap smear is. <laughs> right. And, and yeah, like in, even pap smears, like I get mine from my uh, primary physician. Like I don't even go to an OBGYN for them because again, like it's pretty, pretty easy to do some fiddling around down there. <laughs> <laughs> Again, Jane Collective shows that it's not that hard. Um, the Jane Collective ha- uh, was a group of women in Chicago, you know, pre Roe v. Wade, who took it into their own hands to um, provide abortions because, you know, this was that kind of like black hole of abortion being stigmatized, you know, criminalized, medicalized, but, it, you know, still happened and so the Jane Collective made sure that um if you needed an abortion you could you know safely and privately get one and since so few doctors were trained on it they just decided you know what we're going to teach ourselves how to do this (laughs) so what happens after the FACE Act in the 90s and the approval of misoprostol and mifepristone for as the medication abortion regimen then we just get to see roe v wade be challenged in a multitude of ways but in um in the early 2000s around 2005 anti-abortionists realized that they weren't getting anywhere trying to protect fetuses so they decided to try to go after the health of the pregnant person uh, which led to the idea of post-abortion syndrome, which then in 2008, it was officially debunked um, by long-term studies. However, there's still a lot of debate about those studies because you can't have a like double-blind experiment where half of people get abortions and half of people don't get abortions. Yeah, that would be uh, unethical. (laughs) (laughs) The early 2000s is also when we see the DNX ban, right? I'm not sure. Um, yeah. 2003. Yep. In the, in the misnamed partial birth abortion ban act. Um, you know, an early, I say early, uh, a perfect example of antis using language to, uh, misconvey what a procedure actually is. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So, um, we also, yeah, so there was Planned Parenthood versus Casey in the 90s as well, right? Mm-hmm. That was a little late. That's like 98, right? I don't remember. I am not a scholar of law. Oh, you. No. <laughs> everything in the 90s happened at once <laughs> pretty much yeah but so so Planned Parenthood versus Casey uh upheld the constitutional right to have an abortion um as established in Roe v Wade but it altered the standard for analyzing restrictions on that right uh which is where we see the undue burden argument um established uh although not really used until 2015 with um whole women's health decision right because yeah, even though Roe made abortion legal, 
legality doesn't mean access. And so, you know, conservative lawmakers decided to try to, you know, limit it as much as possible. And so Casey really helped, uh, helped with not having like certain uh, bans like go into effect because they would cause undue burden. Um, and like Kelly just said, you know, that uh, had to be reaffirmed, you know, with Whole Woman's Health and then with um, the, wasn't there another case in the past couple, the Little Sisters versus something, wasn't that also tied up with Whole Woman's Health? Little Sister of the Poor, Little Sisters of the Poor versus Pennsylvania. What was that? Yeah, PA. And that was decided, you know, last year. <laughs> it was like it was three years ago. Right. Um, but yeah, because again, you know, legality doesn't mean accessibility. And even though we have, um, you know, that president sat with Casey to uh, avoid undue burden, that doesn't mean that there still isn't undue burden of, you know, on people who are trying to access abortion. You know, like I would argue that it's undue burden to need to go into the clinic twice to get an abortion. It's, you know, an undue burden to have to drive, you know, hundreds of miles to get to the clinic. Um, and all these other restrictions and, you know, stipulations that we have around um, accessing abortion care. Right. So your, your 2000s and um, is really when you start to see abortion bans pick up. Um, uh, so there's the partial birth abortion ban in 2003. Um, but there's other legislation that starts picking up at the state uh, later on in that 2000s. And then we get to, you know, this last decade of 2010 to 2020, which has been, you know, hellfire. <laughs> Just one ban after another. Yeah. Um, anything else I'm missing in the first 10 years of the decade? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> that sounds very encompassing of what I found. So... Um, and just for an example, in the, the six-week abortion ban has been introduced in the Ohio legislature every, damn near every session since the early 2000s, um, but really actually starts to pick up steam in 2016, where it passes for the House and Senate, but the governor vetoes it, 2018, where it passes, um, and the governor vetoes it, but uh, the House overrode it in 2018, um, but the Senate didn't, which was weird. Um, and then it was finally passed in 2019. So, uh, and Ohio was not the first one to pass this bill. Um, Arkansas passed it in 2013, as well as Wyoming and North Dakota. And there's been a slew of other states that have introduced such legislation and passed it since, since we have. Yeah, a lot of these anti- um, abortion bills, these abortion bans, yeah, like similar ones get proposed and voted on in different states. Um, like they just share stuff um, to see what will stick basically and see how they can get it to a higher court, you know, with the end goal of overturning Roe. Gabe has used uh, a metaphor on previous editions of this podcast where um, he says, you can either take the stairs or the elevator. It doesn't really matter. The goal is still the same. <laughs> so, yeah. The yeah. like, you can pretend that one piece of anti-choice legislation is more reasonable than the other, but the end goal is still the same. It's, it's to outlaw abortion. Which, 
Is there anything else I'm missing between 2000 and now? Well, I mean, there's 23 restrictions that have passed in Ohio. <laughs> um, I mean, we've lost half of our abortion clinics. So that shows, yeah. you know, the onslaught that we've had over the past 10 years. Um, you know, I think due to like advances in other areas and like more awareness about other social justice issues, I think, especially for younger people, they don't see like the dire state that abortion is in. Um, but it is in a very, very dire state, you know, more so than it might have even been like in the earlier 2000s, because again, we lost half of our clinics in the past 10 years. Um, and so now for, there's- I think for most people, it's not really an issue that they necessarily think about until it's something that they need to access. Yeah. Um, and that's an unfortunate time to realize that there is not a clinic until there's an, uh, within two hours of you. Right. Which, you know, can also bring us to, uh, you know, the open study <laughs> that came out, what, yesterday, I think? Um, I don't know. It, I don't know what days are. It came out this week. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, so again, like, you know, abortion isn't talked about that much. It's, uh, you know, people, like Kelly just said, people don't think about it until they need it. Um, you know, I think a lot of that does come from stigma again, you know, people, there's so many people who are like, oh, well, I'm pro-choice, but blah, 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 and things like that. So that's why it's so important to like be unapologetic about your support for abortion. Um, but yeah, there's so many bills all the time that are bad. We're losing all these clinics all the time. And so like it kind of has led to people being confused all the time about abortion and if it's legal or not. Um, and it has been legal since Roe v. Wade, um, but it doesn't always feel that way. I think an important thing to, to realize is that while so many of these patients um, think and believe that abortion is illegal, they are still going out of their way to try and access it. So they don't, it doesn't matter whether or not it's legal or illegal. Um, if they're able to access it, they're going to do their damnedest to do so. Uh, so, you know, it's just a matter of whether or not we criminalize the people who are seeking care. Um, and as far as the open study, this is the Ohio Policy Evaluation Network. They found that one in 10 Ohio women thought abortion access or abortion was illegal uh, amid attempts, attempts to ban abortion at six weeks. So it didn't matter that the bill had passed or was signed by the governor or was vetoed by the governor or the veto override failed in the Senate. It didn't matter. It, the, the fact that it was so much of an issue that the Ohio legislature focused on um, for, you know, four, five, six years made people at least like 10% uh, think that abortion was illegal. And the percentage with that belief increased from 5% to 16% during the study period, corresponding to sustained activity to limit abortions from the fall of 2018 through the summer of 2019. And if you want to see this full study, it appears in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology. There we go. Words are hard. I mean, I remember, um, like, I don't know if I would have, like, guessed that it was 10% of people, but I remember, you know, when the six-week uh, ban was passed, you know, and voted on and stuff, I remember, like, feeling like I was walking around with like a fire extinguisher on social media being like like putting out these fires and people being like oh my gosh like 
I will drive you to a different state to get an abortion and blah, blah, blah. And all this stuff. People thought that it was outlawed like then and there. And um, so I, you know, I was spending like a lot of time being like, no, it's illegal. It's illegal. It's illegal. Um, because there was just so much um, like fear that it was illegal. You know, no, I, I didn't see anybody who was happy about that. They were scared because abortion is super common. And if you um, haven't had one yourself, you know somebody who has, or you will know somebody who has. And um, so it's a lot of fear monitoring is like a big part of these bills as well to make people think that they can't access healthcare. Yeah, it sucks. Yeah, it's bad. But, but abortion is legal in Ohio and you can go to our website, our partner website, uh, abortion is still legal in Ohio.com to find out where all of our clinics are and uh, about the about how to navigate how to get an abortion in Ohio.